0: Well, let's get started here. Uh, As you know, uh, we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. We're actually still in chapter one. If you're following in the notes, it's page two. Um, An introductory comment, uh, perhaps. Um, As we study the book of Ecclesiastes together, uh, and I really want to take our time in going through this, This is about. This book is about a worldview. Um, if I use that term, do you know what I mean by that? Is that is that I think that's a pretty familiar term, but maybe maybe it's one you heard, but you're not quite sure what it means. So let's just um, let's talk about that for just a minute or two. Uh, if you hear the term worldview, what what comes into your mind? What might be some synonyms for that, or even a couple of phrases? A popular uh,
1: belief.
0: All right, a popular belief. Mm
1: hmm. Widely held opinion. Not uh, opinion. Widely held. I want to say feeling. Yeah, don't say feeling. Understanding. <laughs>
0: All right, understanding?
1: It's a perspective yeah. from which you see everything. That you you okay. see the world from this perspective. Good,
0: good. That's, that's, good. It's, that's getting, that's getting uh, real close to, I think, the, the key element of, of worldview. It's a perspective about things, and, and uh, indeed, I think you said everything, that really has an impact, or at least it should have an impact, on how you live your life. For example... Atheism is a worldview. It starts from the premise there is no God. There is nothing in the super, that's part of the supernatural world. All, the natural world is all there is. Now, if you're an atheist and you really believe it, that will affect how you live your life. Um, a Buddhist. Buddhism is a worldview. That the key to understanding and enlightenment is you turn inward. inward. Islam is a worldview. It believes that And teaches that there's one God, absolute monotheism, no trinity, it's Allah, as revealed in the Quran. Hinduism is a world, I mean, I could go on and on and on. Christianity is a worldview. It is, I mean, it's it's what we gain from studying this book, it's our walk with God, it's our relationship with God based on our uh, our faith in Christ and so on. But it is a worldview. Fundamentally, the, a worldview asks and answers six or seven questions. I mean, it asks and answers the question uh, what, what is the ultimate form of reality? What is the ultimate truth? What is the ultimate being? Is there anything beyond the physical world? It asks and answers the question how did we get here? How do we explain the physical world? Is it just random chance? What happens when a person dies? What is the meaning and purpose of a human life? What is the basis for right and wrong? They're worldview questions, and it's really um, it's really central to understanding our study of Ecclesiastes that Solomon. Is asking worldview questions through this book. As I told you last week, uh, I can't remember who was here and who wasn't here. But as uh, uh, we talked very briefly last week, I believe, as do I think most people, uh, that Solomon wrote this book near the end of his life, and he's reflecting on his life. Uh, you know, all of you know a little bit about him and who he. Was and why he was uh, why he was an important person in the scriptures as well as an important person in the ancient in the ancient world in the ancient history he was he was a very important person but he's reflecting on it and what he does and this is why I think it's so relevant to us today in the twenty first century he presupposes something and I kind of put it this way last week let's suppose the box is closed remember that metaphor I used that what you see is what you get. There's nothing beyond the physical world. Another way of saying it is, suppose there is no God. And the thesis of that particular perspective, that particular worldview, is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. And that's the thesis of the book. And it's really, when you first read it, you think, well, what's that doing in the Bible? Because that's not what you're supposed to do. (laughs) You're not supposed to look at it that way. But yet, the value of looking at it that way is that is where so many people are. I don't know if you've ever heard it put this way. We live in America, so let's primarily talk about America. If we were in another country, we would maybe talk about that country. But I believe in the United States of America, there are probably close to 55-60% of Americans are practical atheists. Practical Practical atheists. I don't mean that they're atheists in the sense that they can articulate a well-thought-through worldview where they have reached the conclusion absolutely that there is no God, there is no supernatural. That's not what I mean. They are not convinced that the God they think exists is a 24-7 God who is interested in every dimension and aspect of their life, who is concerned about their sin and their rebellion, has provided a way for them to have a relationship with based on his terms, which is holiness and righteousness, which he makes you if you put your faith in him. That's not how people live. They compartmentalize their life and say, I'll tell you what, I'll give him, I'll give him an hour on Sunday, but the rest of the week's mine. I'm going to live the way I want to live, but then on Sunday I'll go and I'll go to confessional, or I'll go through, you know, if you're in the Roman Catholic tradition, or I'll go, I'll go to church and I'll sing and I'll put some money in the offering plate, and I'm covered, and the rest of the, I'm going to live my life my way. Compartmentalize your life. That's a practical atheist. You're really living the other six days as if God doesn't exist. In some ways, that's really what Solomon is addressing here. Because when Solomon was king, during the time when he is king, did he go to the temple and offer sacrifices? Yeah, we, we have evidence that he did. But while he's doing that, he's also negotiating a treaty with Pharaoh and marries his wife, marries his daughter and brings her into the kingdom and erects monuments to her and worships there too. He's not, only, he's not only being inconsistent, he's being hypocritical, and he is acting as if Yahweh Elohim, the full name of God in the Hebrew Bible, doesn't really exist as he says he exists. The exclusive one and only God that wants to be worshipped and adored and to walk with him. That's not how Solomon's living his life. And so he looks back on his life and he says, oh, my." I lived my life as if the box were closed. That there really isn't the God. The God of, of, the, of the Torah. I was living my life on my terms. Doing things my way. And now I see the consequences of that. Years ago, Frank Sinatra as you know who he is. I'm the oldest one here, so you don't know who he is. But imagine you who know, he was. But anyway, he sang a song. It was very popular. My way. I did it my way. I have thought of that so many times because, uh, I mean, I don't know an awful lot about Frank Sinop. My <coughs> personal life, I really don't. But in many ways, that is how so many people live their lives. My way. And they may tip their head at God. But they're still living life on their terms. Why? Well that's that's part of the sixty-four thousand dollar question for it. Why do people choose to live their life that way? Because in their heart of not hearts are not convinced this is true. they really aren't. You're not convinced that this is true you're believing that by just doing a little bit of good things that that's sufficient being a good person and i, I don't want to trying to stay away from any stereotypes here but it's that it's that whole mindset that is what solomon is challenging here he's challenging that that you find meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life your way that's the way solomon lived his life and he had the wealth and he had the power, and he had the position that he could do it. I mean, as, as you're going to see as we go through this book, he tried everything. There was nothing, There was no, he will tell us that, there is nothing that I wanted to do that I didn't do. I did everything. And that's the, that's the great value of this very old book. It's a 3,000-year-old book. It's as if it were written yesterday. It's as if it were written to a highly successful entrepreneurial wealthy American or a highly successful entrepreneurial Russian. There are a lot of billionaires who are Russians with their collapse of communism. There are a growing number of billionaires in China since they have adopted a, a quasi-capitalist economy. And that this book is as relevant to them as it is to, to a Jew who lived 3,000 years ago. Solomon is saying, if, if the Bible, if, if, if the box is closed, if, if there's nothing beyond the physical world, even though there may be, and I sort of believe it, but I really don't live it, I have discovered at the end of my life, nothing makes sense. Nothing has value if I leave God out. I don't remember exactly where we left off, but I think it was verse 11 think that's where yeah, it, I think right, that's two, two thumbs up so that's where we'll start alright be 95 degrees on so we're going to have to get used to taking our jackets off aren't we mm-hmm. if you look at your notes if you're going to follow those on page 2 I call this next section verses 12 through 18 the futility of human wisdom and I'm, I'm using the term futility as a synonym for vanity. Okay, it's just... Because vanity, nobody uses that word anymore. We can hardly ever find anybody that uses that word. But but futility. Now, again, what I'd like to do is read 12 through 18, the entire paragraph, then we'll go back and kind of take it apart. <clears throat> I, the preacher... Remember, that's how he identifies himself in chapter 1, verse 1. ...have been king over Israel and Jerusalem. And I set my mind to seek and explore by wisdom concerning all that has been done under heaven. It is a grievous task. Look at how he describes that. It's a grievous task which God has given to the sons of men to be afflicted with. I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were over Jerusalem before me. My mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge, and I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I realize that this also is striving it to win. Because in much wisdom, there is much grief. And increasing knowledge results in increasing pain. It's a very interesting paragraph, isn't it? Solomon is the wisest man who ever lived. At least that's how he's described in Scripture. So if you look at the, if you look at the paragraph that I wrote there after verses 12 and 13... Solomon used his extraordinary gifts of wisdom and discernment to study and to explore. They're the words that are used in verse 13 to seek, to study. Words that suggest a thorough and comprehensive examination of all human activity, all that is done under heaven. They're the words he uses in verse 13. What does this mean? What, what can we conclude from this? Well, I'm suggesting it must have involved an exhaustive study of all dimensions of human achievement. Things like science, architecture, history, literature. His conclusion? All this is a heavy burden that God has laid on the human race. Heavy burden in Hebrew means a bad or unpleasant task, a miserable business. Now, let's stop there for just, just a minute. Why such a despairing thing to say? Now, as we study the book of Ecclesiastes, this enhances a lot of class participation. And by definition, class participation means you, not me. And I, ju- I want you to really process this and think with me about this. These are grievous words. These are almost, you're surprised by them. What does he mean? What's in backup? Mark, you were?
2: You know, when he studied human achievements and science and all that kind of stuff, he's supposed to say, what a blessing that God puts on Earth for us, not something that is bad. Why is he doing it as bad? Why is he doing it as a burden? Because it represents God? What is the reason for him to say that it's bad?
0: If you're leaving God out of the equation, out of the picture, and you study science, and that's, you just study science, where does that end up? Nothingness. It ends up, it ends, there is a real uh, conundrum, you know what I mean? There's a real um, difficult, almost excruciating sense of studying science. Because you want to discover the laws that operate and explain science, but every time you study the laws, you keep coming up with exceptions. Or you keep coming. Well, this doesn't quite fit. Um, let me give you an example. If you don't want this is what's, this is part of what I think he's really getting at. Up to um, the sixteen hundreds, we really didn't understand a lot of the laws that explain the operation of the universe. Then along came a man named Isaac Newton. And Isaac Newton set down a series of, they really were called laws, that explain so much about the universe. And I mean, every, it's like enlightenment. Oh my, he's, he's put it all together, now we understand it. One poet in England wrote it, it's on his, on his epitaph for his gravestone, and God said, let there be Newton, and there was light. He opened it up. But then about 200 years later, another 250 years later, another man comes along, named Albert Einstein, who challenges everything Newton argued. And lo and behold, what Einstein said is true as well. Einstein worked, Newton works, until you get matter at the speed of light and beyond. Then things change. That's why we call it the theory of relativity. The more you study, the more grievous it becomes. Listen, I've been in, in higher education all my life and have studied all my life, and do you know what I've discovered? It's one of the most frustrating things you can possibly do. <laughs> because the more you study, and the more you try to master something, the more you realize it cannot be mastered. It is grievous. In my in my little I mean I have a a lot of things I teach but in the area I'm really, really, really interested in one segment of history it is impossible for me to keep up with all that's being written I just I can't do it I can't read all the journals I can't read all the I can't go to all the historic conferences I can't do it I cannot keep up with what's happening in my field and I've got one little narrow speck of a field and you just multiply that by thousands and thousands and thousands of, of blocks of human knowledge You cannot keep up with everything. That's what Solomon is saying. I wanted to do a comprehensive study and explore everything. And I found out this is a grievous task that God has given us. Part of what he's saying is, I cannot understand things comprehensively and exhaustively. I can never say, I now know all there is to know. All there is to know about everything, but all there is to know about one little area. You can't do it. That's what he means. And I I don't remember if I've ever used this, but when I was in seminary, I, I did a theology degree, so it took four years, but I remember the little student, I'm not even sure you would call it a newspaper, but it was a little... Student thing that uh, they put out at the school, and a senior who was just getting ready to graduate, he said, "My first year, I came to Dallas Seminary, thought I'm going to brush up on a few things I don't know and hone my communication skills and my language skills in Greek and Hebrew." At the end of the first year of study, he said, "I came to because you know there's, there really is quite a bit I don't know, so it's good I'm here." By the end of the second year, he had reached the conclusion. He wrote this. He said. You know, I've got two years now. I'm really convinced. You know, there's really quite a bit I don't know. So it's really good I'm here. By the end of the third year, one year left, by the end of the third year, he said, wow, I'm now convinced there's really a great deal I don't know. So I may need to stick around here a little longer. By the end of the fourth year, ready to graduate, he says, I'm now convinced I really don't know anything at all. (laughs) That's what happens. The more you study, the more you realize, I really don't know very much. See, that's why a proposition that fits with the biblical uh, worldview is all truth is God's truth. God knows everything. There's nothing God learned. God doesn't think chronologically. God just knows everything. So Solomon, this is not how he puts it, but Solomon, in effect, is saying, I want to master everything as God has mastered everything. And I found out I can't do that. It's absolutely impossible. And so there is a frustration with that. How can you turn that into a positive? Well, I really realize there's not much I really know. What a humbling, what a humbling conclusion that is. And the consequence is how awesome my God really is. He knows everything. And if I trust him with everything, he knows everything. He doesn't have to learn anything because he knows him. That's what Solomon, he's not there yet in terms of the book. John Newton made a statement too, didn't he? He
3: said, I know one thing. I'm losing my sight, but I know one thing.
0: <laughs> the writer of the of the Amazing Grace hymn. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
2: When we England. We can make up our mind about anything, and we think comfortably that we know everything. But when we start studying, we find out that we know nothing, like you mentioned. One of the other things that we study like this is convicting that there is God. Yeah. You know, when I you know, mentioned science, you know, when I was studying science, and I was in a stage of ignoring God and rejecting God and not believing God whatsoever, the tradition between mm. my Islamic years to you know, put my faith in he mm-hmm. Christ, and I was ignorant by God, and I was projecting Him. Mm-hmm. But when you study, everything is convicting that you can ignore God, but God exists. Mm-hmm. And that would lead you to find who God is. Mm-hmm. Because when he's studying this and he's trying to say he can be the master of everything, um, no, you cannot. Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing, you know, we can think that we can be the master of science, and mm-hmm. we can be the masters of our life, and we can make it right
0: for ourselves and go to heaven on our own, but we figure out that we're full short and we need God to go to heaven, we need God to understand things, we need God to run the universe, because we can't. Exactly, exactly. With God in the picture, which, remember, he's hypothesizing God, I'm, I'm not focusing on God, but with God in the picture, it's, it's humbling, but it's also awe-inspiring, it's also an amazing step of faith that you study everything with God in the picture it's, brings. I have a friend who teaches at UNO in the uh, physics uh, well, one of the areas of physics but anyway, physics broadly and he's a, he's a neat guy to talk to because he's a strong believer and he looks at doing his science and doing his experimentation involved in research and everything as bringing glory to God he says, I, I learn more about God as I do my work than anything else. Because I see this is the kind of world my God's created. A, God, a, a, a world where there is order and design and purpose and meaning and beauty and diversity and variety. You see, if you don't believe in God, then all of this is a result of randomness. But if you believe in God, it's purpose, it's meaning. I mean, I Peggy and I often say this, we're thankful we live in a part of the country where we can experience all four seasons in a year. Because you see, in each one of the four seasons has a beauty that's a part of it, a uniqueness that's a part of it. And that it's, a, it's an opportunity to praise God and thank Him for what He's done. But if you leave God out of the picture, that's not, that's not how you look at things. Solomon says in verse 14, I have seen all the works which have been done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after wind. All of the works have been done under the sun. Everything humans have done up to that point in history. And he characterizes it as striving after wind or chasing after wind. In your notes I wrote, Chasing after wind, it's a rather graphic picture of much effort expended with no results achieved. You ever try to catch the wind, chase after the wind? You're never going to catch it. It's a futile act. Solomon compares trying to amass knowledge, amass wisdom, and look at all human effort without God. Now here's why he concludes some of this. Look at verse 6 to 15. With all my wisdom and all my knowledge and all that I now understood, what is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. What does he mean? What does he mean by what is crooked cannot be straightened? Well, broadly speaking, in, in a way, yeah. Key in and crooked. What, what is he? What is he saying there? I mean, you all know what crooked means. What's he saying there? Wrong or evil? Yeah, things that are wrong. Th- things that should be straight that aren't straight. They're crooked. You know, sometimes we talk about them as dysfunctional things, or things that aren't operating correctly, or human relationships that aren't operating parent-child relationship, husband-wife relationship, boss-employee relationship, on and on and on and on. They shouldn't be that way. But all my vast wisdom, can't fix that. A rebellious child, all my sophisticated knowledge and degrees, can't fix that. In your notes, I wrote, All human effort and all human achievement cannot remedy all the irregularities and counteract all the deficiency in the world. you see any examples of that? This is that part called class participation.
2: It's what you mentioned before, why there's 55% decided to live on their own. And not do it their own way and not doing it God's way. You know, how can you even convince those people that God exists and why does it make does it make sense to us and it makes total sense to them? All right. And we don't make any sense to them as well.
0: Oh, often that's the case, yeah. that's right. What are some think think with me you now? I want you to try to help me think very specifically here. What would be some of the things about our world that just knowledge alone, I mean, just amassing human knowledge and you know, getting all of the understanding that study brings. Can't make them straight.
2: Said Say it again, please. Hatter game. Hatter
0: okay. All right. Well, nat- uh, what we sometimes call natural disasters. natural disasters. What's the insurance industry call them? Is that what natural, nat-
1: disasters.
0: natural disasters? I mean, it doesn't matter what we do, we're not going to be able to prevent tornadoes. We can do early warning systems and people can get to safe places, but we're never, ever going to fix tornadoes. The movie Irregular talks about, um, or Irreplaceable
3: uh, talks about the family and the absence of fathers from from the family, and um, that some of the players that are terrific physical specimens and great players mm. would love to see their father but they don't know who he is mm. they'd like to look up in the stand when they're playing and see the face of their father mm. but they know that they never will and it leaves a vacuum in their lives hmm mm.
0: So PhD in whatever it is isn't going to fill that gap, is it? Oh, wow. You're either reluctant to talk about this or you just want me to offer the examples. But things like the natural disasters, but probably what is really, really, really important are the things that really touch humanity. An absentee father. A, a dysfunctional marriage situation. Men and men, listen, human knowledge doesn't solve that. No matter how many degrees you have, that, that doesn't solve that. Because knowledge alone does not correct and solve the issues of human behavior and the hurt and pain. As a matter of fact, most of the time when, when people engage in this, they already know this isn't good, this isn't positive, this isn't right, it's going to cause a lot of problems but I don't care. It's satisfying for me. It's fulfilling my need or my goal or my purpose. Fred mentioned uh, right at the beginning, I don't know if you're all here yet, I don't remember, but that phrase I used last week of that one man that, that, that is in one of my other groups said, as he came to faith later in his life, I've been a very successful businessman. I've been leaning my ladder against the wrong wall. That's not gained by massive amounts of knowledge and study. That's gained by an observation of a man who's 50 years old, lived a big chunk of his life, and is reaching a conclusion. Because you see, the only thing that makes crooked things straight is the new birth. It's Jesus. He's the only one that makes crooked things straight. You know, I I've worked with young adults mostly is, is where I've done most of my work but with young adults and kids that come out of terribly dysfunctional and very hurtful situations and you know the greatest danger for them is that they will replicate the things that their parents did but Jesus can break that cycle that's, that's, that's not an educational issue that's not an issue you solve by just throwing piles of money at the problem, as sometimes government chooses to do. We solve a problem by spending a great deal of money on a program. Not saying that some of those programs can't help, but it's like in Texas several years ago, George, when George Bush was governor, and I, I please don't understand this as a political statement, it's just an observation of something that is an illustration of what Solomon's saying. You had in in the prisons of Texas, you had two major programs. You had a program that the state administered to help prisoners through their prison term, so that you know what recidivism means—the repeat rate would go down. Okay, so you had this government-run program run by the, the the prison system itself, funded by the state of Texas. Then you had another program that was run by Teen Challenge. I don't know if you've ever heard of that ministry. It's a, it's a very good ministry. and They've got all kinds of things, but they were in the prisons in Texas, in, in two of the prisons in Texas. Which one, which one do you think reduced significantly the recidivism rate? The Teen Challenge one. Because guys came to faith in Christ and they really saw their lives change, transformed. And if I hope I can remember these correctly, but if I'm correct in my memory, the recidivism rate from the state programs, the recidivism rate was about eighty percent. No, that's eight out of every ten guys that leave prison come back to yeah, prison. It's high. 80 okay? Three. That it hardly impacted it. It went down three or four percent. The teen challenge guys, it went from eighty percent to twenty percent. More knowledge, more information, more money? No the transformation of a life, spiritually. They came to know Christ, and it had a dramatic impact on every part of their life. But the government says, well, you can't fund this program because of the separation of church and state. And you think, that, that just doesn't make sense. And yet the brilliant people with all the PhDs saying, this is what we do. We're going to throw our money here. I'm making that in a real cynical contrast. But that's the bottom line. Solomon is saying knowledge without spiritual transformation is futile. It's vanity. It's empty. Because what's crooked cannot be straightened, and what's lacking cannot be made up. Put it in the New Testament words. Jesus can do that. It's a very powerful, it's a very powerful argument he's laying down here. Look at what he does in verse 16 and 17. I said to myself, Behold, I have magnified and increased wisdom more than all who were of Jerusalem before me, and my mind has observed a wealth of wisdom and knowledge. And I set my mind to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. Now, think about verse 17 for just a minute. What he wants to do is he wants to contrast which is better, living a wise life or living a life of folly. Which, which one makes more sense? I realize this too is striving after win, which is really, 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 really interesting. Because in much wisdom there's much grief and increasing knowledge and growth and increasing pain. If you look at your notes, what we wrote there in 16, 17, 18, this is a personal reflection on his situation. He knew he was wise, the wisest man who ever lived. He also knew that this wisdom had guided the reflection he described in the preceding verses. So this personal reality causes him to do some further reflection. Verse 17, to consider the difference between wisdom, madness, and folly. He compares and contrasts these two states and reaches a staggering conclusion. It's chasing after wind. It's frustrating. It's not satisfying. It's even depressing to him. Because the pursuit of wisdom, verse 18, produced the opposite of what he hoped for. Instead of contentment, he found sorrow and grief. Because he concluded, with much wisdom comes sorrow, mental anguish. With much knowledge comes more grief, sadness of heart. Why such conclusion? Because wisdom and knowledge don't solve things, don't solve the fundamental problem of the human condition. You can look at it from a lot of angles. I told you about in my particular discipline. It's extremely frustrating, and it is. It's it's almost maddening. It's it's grievous. It's very frustrating because you you know you you. <laughs> Uh, let me give you an illustration. You do all this study to get a PhD. And you go through the agony of writing a dissertation. Which is, I mean, that is an agonizing thing to do. And it, it, most people go through the writing of a they become a post tribulationist They mean they live through the tribulation. <laughs>
1: That's
0: a joke. But anyway. But you know, you end up, you got all that, you defend it, and you know, about four people are going to read it. Nobody is interested in what you did, really? You just it's what you, there's hoops you have to go through to, to get that. But nobody cares. Nobody reads what you wrote. Most dissertations are put on the shelf of a library or now stored electronically, and nobody ever reads them. And, and you think about that for I mean, I spent a lot of money, put a lot of time into this. Why didn't I do this? That's why some people just give up. They just, they don't do it. They stop. They don't finish. There are so many ABDs out there. ABD means all but dissertation. Because they come to, this is really ridiculous. I'm doing all this work, spending all this money, and it really isn't going to make that much difference. Jim, that's I, not necessarily true. But that's what Solomon's getting
3: at. We're, we're used to this word, I think a lot of us are, on wisdom, as wisdom comes from God. Uh, And here, wisdom isn't satisfying. So what's wrong with this wisdom that other wisdom that we can have uh, is beneficial to us?
0: Well, we make the assumption that this wisdom that he is speaking of here is not a God-centered wisdom. It's a human-centered wisdom. Do you understand what I mean by that? And that's what's not satisfying. Let's let's turn all this into a positive. Suppose you know the Lord, and God is is the center of your life. Your walk with Jesus is the most important aspect of your life, and you have a PhD in science. How's that satisfying? Instead of the grief and the frustration and the pain, the words he uses here, how is that satisfying?
1: It's no, not. Right. Because in and of itself, without the relationship okay. with Christ, okay. if you have the relationship that mm. points you to the relationship, then you can't. Right. But in and it of itself, <clears throat> it's going to be very faulty.
0: It yeah. too is empty. Yeah. But if you know the Lord and walk with the Lord, is studying internally significant? It's yeah, it is. Word. Okay, let's, let's do it this way. You're walking with the Lord. You don't know the Lord. Okay. Why Why do you care for your yard and your garden? Well, I want to have the best one on, on my street. I want vanity. everybody. Huh? Vanity. Ah, vanity. Okay, now. I'm
1: the best real estate salesperson okay. in Omaha. Okay. Or I have the most money. Exactly. Or I have left this much set aside for my children. There you and go. Trust. Yeah. And that's all vanity if it's a closed box. Right. right, exactly.
0: But if, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ and you walk with him in fellowship, what's the difference between a person who doesn't cutting the grass and caring for the yard and doing the gardening and you? He's doing it unto the Lord. You're doing it unto the glory Lord. The Lord has given you a little... i make this up, but I think... Sorry, I talked to the students. The Lord's given you a little plot of ground. You're a steward over that. He's trusted you with that. And you're cutting your grass and trimming your bushes and caring for your flowers. Saturday, Peggy went out and she wanted me to go with her. We got all her flowers for the spring and planted them. Oh, my goodness. But it's, 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 I've grown. I actually, I can't believe I'm saying this. I've grown to enjoy that <laughs> because you really do it unto the Lord. 1 Corinthians 10 31. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That brings purpose and meaning. You know, there's such a thing as a work ethic. Why do you work hard? And I'm not talking about workaholism. That's not what I mean. Why do you work hard? Because it's a stewardship from God. He trusts you with that. Why, why are you careful with your finances? Because you want to be better than anybody else. If that's the motive, that's wrong. No, it's a stu- God's trusted me with this. I want to be a good steward of it. That's my responsibility. See, Solomon is saying, if you leave God out of things... It is grievous. It is painful. It's hurtful. It doesn't make any sense. That's why my friend, that, the guy I told you about last week, he came to Christ and he said, I have been leaning my ladder against the wrong wall. And that's, that's exactly what Solomon is saying here. If you're leaning your ladder against God's wall and God's involvement, he's holding you up and he's sustaining you and all that, then everything you do is for his glory and for his purpose. And see, that gives to me, I mean, I'll be very blunt, when I finally got all this together in the 1970s, it just changed my life, everything I do. And I I hope you guys are understanding even the illustration I use from my own life, but what Solomon's saying here, if you leave God out, this is gonna be the result. It's frustrating, it's not satisfying, it's vanity, it, it's grievous, it's painful because fundamentally getting to the question why am I doing this? Because it isn't satisfying. I mean men and women you talk to and if you really get them in a corner and you talk to them and they're having a really bad day or they've been through they're going to tell you this, I this guy said to me, I'm to the point where how much more money do I need to make? And it was amazing that that is one of the things that brought him to the spiritual awakening of Christ in his life, because he said, really, I'm working my tail off. But quite frankly, how much money do I need? Because he was realizing something. All his wealth wasn't buying him any real happiness. It didn't bring a lot of fulfillment into it. Isn't that amazing? Because almost all Americans, that's not how they think. But then they get there or whatever their means and it's it's not satisfying did
2: they ask Robert, well, I like that same question how much more do you need he says a little bit more a little bit more
0: <laughs> you know when that's you that's the
1: example that you gave last week we talked about how Solomon had all these uh, harems and God's mm-hmm. clients how mm-hmm. he built all these temples mm-hmm. and, and, and Deuteronomy of course it says he's built one I believe <laughs> and uh Anyway, uh, so he did all that,
0: and uh, and it wasn't
1: satisfying. That's right. You know? That's right. I mean, that's where he got it. That's when he began to get his wisdom, is not it? I
0: mean, he was supposed to be the wisest man in the world, or something. And he was, but exactly, it's not till the end of his life, I believe. That's when I think this was written, that it all starts to come together. But he had done a lot of things, and his successors, his Kingdom and his successors will pay for some of the things he did. It's really quite tragic.
2: What brought him needs to 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 change the way he is.
0: Mark, we do not know that. I mean, there is not in 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 the you know for the most part Solomon's reign is 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 in uh, in the kings and, and chronicles. There is no singular event that's pointed out there. As a matter of fact, most of the stuff once you get past those early years of Solomon's rule. Most of the stuff about Solomon is pretty negative. Even at the
2: end of his time?
0: Yes. Yeah. So it's yes. not
2: actually what's better than good. Actually, there's stuff that was better then.
0: Well, yeah. I, in the sense that if he wrote this at the end of his life, and we don't know exactly when he wrote it, he, he's coming to that point where many come, I've lived my life, and now I'm looking back on it. And this is what I'm concluding about the life I've lived. You know, I I do believe, without question, I think we'll see Solomon in heaven. I, I don't think there's any question of that. But yet, with Solomon, you see, and this is, I think, the lesson the Bible wants us to draw, you see the tragedy of a wise, gifted man living a major part of his adult life as if God did not exist. Now, he went through the motions, But in practically speaking, that's how he was living. I don't care what you say, God. I don't care what Deuteronomy 17. I'm not going to be that kind of king. Remember, we read that last week. I'm not going to be that kind of king. I don't care what you say. Whether he actually articulated it that way or not, that's how he was living his life. You told me in Deuteronomy 17, I'm not to go down to Egypt and amass war chariots, and yet that's exactly what he did. He built three great chariot cities. Gezer, Megiddo, and Hasor. He wasn't supposed to do that, but he did it. Do not amass gold and silver for yourself. I don't care what you say, God, that's what I'm going to do. It. And he went ahead and did it. And the text is very clear. The righteous king who will rule over you, he should not take foreign wives. God, I don't care what you say, that's what I'm going to do. And that's what he did. So Ecclesiastes is his reflection on living life on his terms instead of God's terms. And that's why he wrote the book Ecclesiastes. And these here. At the end exact at the end, in the last verses of chapter twelve, he's gonna reach his conclusion.
2: It's not fair he
0: had fun. I'm sorry. <laughs> I didn't but I didn't hear what you said. It's
2: not fair, he had so much fun.
3: <laughs> you know, I was kind of thinking about the same thing in the sense that when we die and go to heaven, you know. Are we going to be excited to see Solomon?
0: And if so, why? <laughs>
2: oh, yeah, it depends.
0: I don't know if we're going to actually think of it quite that way. but yeah. uh, We have got to be sensitive to the time because they, they need to be in here. All right? Yeah. The tomorrow we'll pick up with chapter 2. So if you have an opportunity you want to read ahead in chapter 2, chapter the two. first part, he tests hedonism. Did hedonism fulfill? we'll talk about that okay, I gotta quit. Father thanks for this time in this rich, rich, rich book we're studying together bless these men help them in their lives to lean their ladder against the right wall to see and enjoy everything you give them to their fullest in, glory, in, in admiration, glory and worship of you whether they're cutting their grass doing their job caring for their children or grandchildren uh, with their wife whatever it is they're beautiful gifts from you to be enjoyed in our fullness as a stewardship from you, worshipfully glorifying and honoring you through all that we do. That is what brings meaning and purpose to life. Help us to live that kind of life and represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. See you next week. See you next
3: week.